Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 236, Best of Our Best. We like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Anthony, there's so much fun stuff to talk about, especially in board gaming, of course, but... A lot of trailers just dropped, Marvel just dropped, Star Wars just dropped, just really pretty much everything Disney dropped recently. Did you have a favor from anything? I'm a staunch defender of the new trilogy. I liked episode seven. I loved episode eight. And I did not. Yeah, Chris did not. So we've gone back and forth a bit. I have not really liked anything I've heard or seen about episode nine yet. I don't know how this is going to go. So I might, I might join Chris. And ironically, I loved all of it. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> oh man. Like it was like the second they announced JJ Abrams was coming back. I'm like, no, uh, I like, I don't know how this turns out well. So it doesn't. It doesn't. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Yeah, so we're not going to spoil anything. I'm sure there's some of you out there who are avoiding all the trailers, but let's just suffice it to say, meh. Okay, yeah, so there's a lot of Star Wars stuff out there, and there's a lot of Marvel stuff out there, so the new releases are out there, the new television shows are out there, I guess it's D23, so there's a whole bunch of fun stuff out there to check out, and obviously at some point, someday, we will eventually see all of this in board game format i'm sh i'm sure <laughs> yeah i know like it's crazy how little of the new trilogy is even in the board games like it's all originally stuff and yeah. like i know some people hate it some people love it same with marvel but it makes a ton of money so you'd think they'd make more games about it maybe they're just waiting for it to be done it's possible you know give some space to it but eventually we'll see more of it out there so you'll definitely see a lot more star wars stuff coming up in the future and definitely a lot more Marvel stuff coming out in the future. And then obviously just generally Disney stuff coming out there. So some stuff to keep an eye out for. But let's talk about the board games that we currently have and all the great stuff that's going on BGA, Anthony. Let's talk about our Patreons and let's talk about our Patreon contest. 
Yeah, yeah. Patreon contests, always a lot of fun. Just so anybody who's listening for the first time or the first time in a while, we run a contest every single week. Anybody who backs on Patreon at any level is eligible to enter. And it's different every week. So sometimes I ask you to identify some components. Sometimes I ask you to do a little scavenger hunt. This week was fairly simple. It was describe a board game badly. This is a meme from about a year ago that one of our listeners recommended. And uh, specifically, they sent me this screenshot of a uh, a tweet from Explain a Film Plot Badly for Avengers. Um, and it was, single father tries to end world hunger with his rock collection. So obviously, Thanos, you know, all that stuff. So you get it. But if you just heard that out of context, you probably have no idea what that's talking about. Unless you knew that's what you were looking for. So that's what I ask people to submit. Get your best poorly described board games and i'm gonna read a few i'm gonna see if chris can guess any Uh-oh. of them at all if he guesses them it's probably not a winner because <laughs> the whole point of this is that they're bad right but they're also supposed to be funny once you know what it is so i'll read a handful of these and then we're gonna pick our favorite and that'll be the winner we are doing this live you guys this is not randomly drawn this is not done in advance this is done live as we record this these are our uh, finalists. I'm looking forward to being embarrassed. Yes, it's fun. This is I have the power of the Patreon here. Um, <laughs> all right. First up, Michael Mahoney, Mortal Kombat. But you always fight the shadow version of the character you picked. Wow. Mortal Kombat. But you always fight the shadow version of what you picked. Huh. Huh. This is a board game. It is a board game. Wow. All right. Uh, Twilight Struggle. All right. That's incorrect. Let's <laughs> move on. <laughs> Next up, Drew says, Our childhood reminder that good deeds lead to more work while bad deeds lead to fun and excitement. Hmm. This is a childhood game. This is a kid's okay, game. Okay. So I don't think that's necessarily going to help me, unfortunately. I'm going to say... Uh, ooh. Candyland? It's close. It's close. So I guess I should probably tell the answers here if we can't guess them. Uh, Mortal Kombat, but you always fight the shadow version of the character you picked is Onitama. Okay. Okay. And our childhood reminder that good deeds lead to more work while bad deeds lead to fun and excitement is shoot down Okay. Ladders. Yeah, that was a uh, historical... I guess, developmental device to teach kids right and wrong, so to speak, way back in the day. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one. Um, All right. So next up from Michael, we have trying to stay popular while spooking away farmers and making them drop their ludicrous amounts of resources. Oh, that's got to be Scythe, man. Yeah, you got it. (laughs) (laughs) It's well written, but I like as reading it, I'm like, yep, that's Scythe. (laughs) This is one of my favorites from Aaron. Magical tourist goes on three-day rampage through the countryside. Magical tourist goes through three-day rampage through the countryside. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I don't, I can't even think of something that's like that. Oh, man. A magical tour. No, I can't think of anything. Yeah, this one's not really fair to you because you haven't played this game that I'm aware of. Uh, it's Mage Knight. No. Okay. Yeah, I haven't played it. Okay. The whole idea is like you're a mage, you're exploring, you're trying to find where you're going, and then you you beat stuff up as you go. Gotcha. All right. So we have 
Andrew says, when young Elena arrives at a vineyard for a summer abroad, she just can't keep her hands off the farmhand's grapes and dares to taste the forbidden wine. <laughs> I don't know if I should answer that one just because there might be children listening. Um, <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. I, I guess this could be one of two possible games, or actually technically more than one. Uh, I, I guess Vinos? got the wrong one it's a ah! viticulture yeah <laughs> i know it's 50 50 right it was a 50 50 shot on that yeah all right last one brendan says a game for two people deciding on which romantic vampire movie to watch <laughs> so would would that then be uh twilight struggle it would yeah <laughs> there you go okay dad puns away <laughs> <laughs> oh man so what do you think of all those which one did you like best wow uh i guess it's i mean it's a really really tough one there but i guess just for the historical angle i guess go with shooting shoots and ladders all right yeah i like that one too that was pretty good uh so Mm -hmm. drew congratulations drew you are our winner and uh i'll shoot you an email this week probably before this goes up and uh yeah you get a game on the way All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for participating. That was a lot of fun for me and not completely ridiculously embarrassing. But uh, nonetheless, if you'd like to join the fun and embarrass me even more, please join our Patreon account and helps us produce the content that you are really looking forward to. All right. So that's everything from our Patreon contest. Anthony, what do our listeners have to say? What's our question of the week? All right, question of the week. This was a fun one. I asked everybody, what is the best first player token in board games? This is, we talked about superfluous components a little bit last week mm-hmm. and the week before. This is probably the most superfluous component and often developers and publishers have fun with it. So I asked people, what's your favorite? So a bunch, a bunch of answers here. We have Tommy says the crown from Endeavor. Uh, okay. Carl mentions the moose from A Feast for Odin, which is one of my favorites personally. Uh, <laughs> Kyle mentions the terraforming Mars Rover, which I'm pretty sure is like an upgrade you can get, but I have it. So I'm going to give him credit for that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, Soren mentions the photosynthesis sun token. Uh, we have Cindy mentions homebrewers, which is a relatively new game, uh, has a beer coaster. That's, that's pretty cute and clever for a, a beer game. And then we had like eight people mention dinosaur Island because <laughs> obviously dinosaur Island and it's not even just like the one you know, the the slap bracelet, the '90s slap bracelet, but the there's the dual game I believe has the mosquito and amber. One of the two does, and so several people mentioned that there was kind of a conversation going on about like where that's from. Sure, but there's multiple first player tokens from the Dinosaur Island series, which are amazing. So yeah. it's it's hard to argue that they kind of have that one down. We have the King on the Throne in Feudum. That was a good one. Mm-hmm. And then Henry V wooden block from Lancashire, as well as Wash's Stego from Firefly. So lots of good stuff here. What do you think? Well, I'm going to have to jump in with everybody else. I actually did remark on this on Facebook, which was the slap bracelet, in part because it, that is part of my childhood growing up. And it is very late 80s, early 90s kind of, I guess, fashion, so to speak. So if you were wearing a slap bracelet or... If you were back in the day, you were wearing multiple slap bracelets. So that was honestly the thing to have. And it was literally everywhere. 
until parents worry that somehow if you had one of those things, therefore you would cut yourself up into a million pieces, which was insane. But I mentioned this story very briefly. It's nobody that anyone knows who did this. Uh, just a <laughs> random person, unidentifiable, probably made up, more than likely. We played Dinosaur Island, and at one point, this person who we will not speak of because they don't really exist was the first player, put on the slap bracelet. I usually don't put the slap bracelet on, I just hold it. They put it on. We continue to play the game. And I'm assuming that first player marker switched at some point. Maybe or maybe it didn't. And the person got up at the end of the game and left. Did not realize they took the slap bracelet with them. And the next time I got the game to the table, I'm like, wait a minute. Well, oh, no, where's the slap bracelet? Which is crazy because it's, it's this little thin sliver of a thing. And I was looking everywhere for it and could not find it until this magical made up person came back and was like oops and i was like what which made sense now because yeah you get kind of wrapped up into a game so to speak so that's certainly a thing yeah the wearable the wearable first player token that's it's an interesting decision but also amazing like that's the one i was thinking of and i'm not surprised like a third a full third of the people who responded that's what they said I'll give an honorable mention to the raw token. So if you ever played raw, it's pretty much a bidding game and you're picking up tiles to make set collections. There's this giant blue raw figure, I, I depending on the edition. And if you want to call raw, which means you want to call the game an auction into play, you, you know, you bang this token, you say raw, you don't need the token. It's huge. It's wooden. It's probably very expensive. It's a nice token to have, but it's kind of silly and yeah so that's somehow a thing in an auction game so i guess they want it to be the gavel but nonetheless that's just another thing to throw out there first player tokens really interesting and not sure why they're there but they are yeah 100 they're it's a fun way to be creative in the development process or a good way to waste materials on a really boring material so like the, these are the best of the best though absolutely all right, Anthony, so that's everything from our listeners. If you would like to jump in on all the fun and be one of the first players to jump into the conversation, Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek. We are on YouTube. I know you don't listen necessarily on YouTube, but go ahead, jump on, subscribe there. There are videos popping up there all the time. All of our podcasts are up there. Please join us up there. Subscribe, like, follow, and most importantly, you want to do something great for us? Share the podcast with other people. It would make a big difference to us as we spread board gaming to people who don't realize what it is. And once they get in, they're in for life. <laughs> yeah, you can't get out. We nope. got you. Nope, we got you in on that first gateway game. Next thing you know, you're ordering $500 in board games and another thousand dollars in sleeves and baggies and there's no way out man there's no way out all right so let's get on to the games that we want to get to the table because we are trying to bring new people into the field anthony let's talk about your acquisition disorders all right yeah first up for me is a game that my buddy here in pittsburgh sent me via text a few days ago uh maracaibo this is or marasaibo i don't I'm not really sure how to pronounce that but it is the new Alex Fister game that is coming out this fall. And his games tend to just drop like that. Hey, I have a new game. It's coming out in three months, uh, which is cool because I don't have to wait very long. Right. Uh, so He's just like Beyonce. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> I'm just waiting for like he doesn't care. I'm waiting for the overnight board game drop. <laughs> Boom. Y'all need to That would be awesome. We should totally do that. Absolutely. That'd be great. <laughs> so this is the new one he has coming out and it's coming out I believe at Essen, but also Capstone has picked it up and it's coming out in the US from Capstone and they are shipping before the end of the year. So you can actually pre-order it right now. Uh the game takes place in the Caribbean. Uh, during the 17th century, which of course means pirate times. And what you'll be doing, the you and up to three other players will be sailing around these different islands and trying to raise your influence in the three different nations that had influence in the area at that time. So there's various city tiles, you're doing all sorts of different actions. Um, there is the ability to deliver goods, of course, but it doesn't seem like it's quite a pick up and deliver type of game. Um, I'm sure that's a me- mechanism in here. They're playing up the story mode a little bit, and that's just something Alexander Fister does. He often puts in some form of story mode, especially in like his last handful of games, or you can play multiple games in a row and it kind of develops a little bit. I don't know a ton about this, except it looks really pretty. It is decently expensive, as his last several games have been. There is a deluxe version of it, if you pre-order it, which comes with like metal coins, and I already pre-ordered it. So <laughs> those are the things I know. So, yeah, I mean, any of his games, even after Black at Hong Kong kind of disappointed me a little bit, I haven't really disliked any of his other games. So I'm on board for this one. I'm excited. I It looks really nice. It's bright. It's colorful. It's pirates, but it's not like pirates, pirates. It's just this kind of looks like a fun jaunt, you know, through the through the different islands of the area. And we'll see how it goes. Um I, you know, price is price, but these days everything costs that much. So it's just a matter of which games you want to buy. Uh, I I don't know what to say about it anymore. Everybody's charging 70, 80 bucks a game these, at this point, but it looks good. And I'm definitely going to have it at some point by the end of the year. And I'll be talking about it. So that's Maracaibo from Alexander Fister. Did you back with coins? Oh my God, they got you on the coins, man. Why would I not? (laughs) If they're going to offer it, why would I not do that? It's all the monies, man. It's all the monies. We don't don't have to talk about that right now. (laughs) See, here's the thing when it comes to the metal coins. I'm a fan of the metal coins, but here's the thing. At what point do you stop buying the metal coins and just buy poker chips? Like quality poker chips. Yeah, you're right. Also, at what point do you not have enough metal coins from other games to just use them for all games? See, I Um, try not to think about that, but it's true. Yeah, I know, right? Like, I have probably three different sets of Roman metal coins, like from ancient Rome era. I never need another set again. But if a game came out in that setting and it had custom metal coins, I'd probably buy them because, you know, that's why we call this acquisition disorder. It's very, very true. It looks like a. am not a pirate guy, but it does look like a really interesting, somewhat special power tableau building board control kind of Euro thing. So, yeah, this looks actually pretty decent. And as you mentioned, looking at it with the cardboard money is problematic. So, yeah, I I could see why you went with the coins there because they look really good. Yeah, it does. They do. All right. So, Anthony, I want to talk about a game that I'm sure you'll be really into as well. This is Orlean's Stories. Now, most of our audience out there probably already knows about Orlean's. Orlean's is a fantastic 
bag building game where you're putting all these different people from this medieval age into your bag as you collect them throughout. So there are knights, there are monks, there are farmers. There's a whole bunch of different people that go into the bag. And then you are building up Orleans. And basically you're building them up by selecting randomly from the bag these different artisans and warriors and so forth and so on. And then you place them on the board. You're able to produce actions and get different abilities and you're picking up resources and you're moving along the map. It's fun. If you have not played Orleans, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but you should play Orleans. It's a lot of fun. So in Orleans stories, what you're doing here is you are using the Orleans bag building mechanic to be able to not just go down the same Orleans road, but you're actually settling a new area at the Lori Valley, and you're there to create farms, produce produce, found villages, build fortresses and churches. And instead of having just a one standard gameplay, there are two stories in here, the first kingdom and the king's favor. The first kingdom is this big epic story with eight arrows. And the king's favor is a shorter, simpler game as they describe it, and which has only has five arrows. But the idea is to kind of introduce you to the game. So it's not a legacy game. It's not necessarily a campaign game but it's kind of like two different versions of the same game. If you played Orleans previously, especially the expansions, you probably already kind of understand like Orleans has different play modes, so to speak. The production looks great. It looks like Orleans, but kind of upgraded. You have this kind of general map area and a score track around the sides. You have your different tracks you're trying to run up and you have your people out there and putting buildings out there, very Catan style. And pretty much the same thing that you loved about Orleans, but in a different format. So Orleans stories, not a lot of information out there, but it's coming out pretty soon. Yeah, I don't know what to think of this. Like, it almost feels like what Fister does with his games, but like Mm -hmm. ramped up to 11. Yeah. I don't know. Like, and like, I love that he does it in his games, but I haven't really done any of them. Like, I don't get a Euro game to do a story campaign thing. I just want to play a Euro game. So (laughs) I don't know. I'm I'm waiting for someone to do it well. I just it's yet to happen. Yeah, I really enjoyed Orleans, the bag building mechanic. The base game alone is kind of okay, but it really livens up with the expansion. So I think at this point, he's kind of perfected the mechanics here well enough that I'm, I'm willing to trust him on a different version of the same game. All right, Anthony, so that's everything from Acquisition Disorders. Let's get on to the games that have hit the table, the games we have played, and we'll let everyone know. And we will let everyone know if those games are a buy and they should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play, then you should sit down and play them. If those games are a dodge and you should avoid them, or if those games are or if those games are the dreaded burn and you should burn those games, because let's be honest, it's like the Star Wars sequels. They're just no good. Oh, come on. All right, not not, not that bad. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll kick it off um, with a game that's very good. So there, there you go. go. So like the original trilogy. Yeah, yeah, and some parts of the new one, but nothing in the middle. The prequels. <laughs> <book>. <laughs> All right, so this is Watergate. This was one of the hot games at Gen Con. I actually picked it up at Gen Con. I've been playing it a bit since then, and you'll notice that it's been about a month since then. Um I wanted to get a bunch of plays of this in, and I'll tell you why in a minute. This is a new game from Matthias Kramer and from Capstone Games, as well as Frosted Games over in Germany. And it is an asymmetrical two-player game 
takes about 30 minutes to an hour, but in my experience, 30 minutes seems about right. And it is the Nixon administration versus the editors of the Washington Post during the Watergate scandal. So on the Nixon side, you're trying to protect him and keep him in office until the end of his term. And on the Washington Post side, you're trying to expose him for the fraud and liar that he is and get him to resign. Ow. Yeah, no, it's it's brutal. Uh, every, both sides have completely asymmetrical decks. So unlike Twilight Struggle, which this game is frequently um, compared to, both players draw their own cards. When you draw your cards, it's going to depend on who has initiative. The player with initiative gets to draw five. The other player gets to draw four. And in your hand, you're going to have various numbers of cards. You have event cards that you can play to do some special effect. And often they're incredibly powerful effects. But if you use the powerful effect, you set that card aside almost always for the rest of the game. There are some exceptions to that. There's like conspirator cards on the Nixon side. There's journalist side. There are journalist cards on the Washington Post side that will come back into your deck if you use them for the event. But most of the cards go away forever. So you get to use them once. The goal of the game for the editors is to connect two different spaces on the central board where the evidence tokens go back to Nixon's photo from the various informants that are available. So you need to play cards for at least two informants and then get evidence tokens, which you'll earn through various effects throughout the game that connect back to him. On the Nixon side, you want to stop that from happening and get five of the momentum tokens that are available throughout the round. So essentially what the game is, is a race. Uh, and most games that I played, it was about six rounds where the Nixon side will get three or four of the momentum tokens, which there's one in every round and you just kind of fight over it in the center of the board. And if, if the Nixon player gets all five right away, if like the editor is like, nah, whatever, then the Nixon player is going to win. Right. But typically towards the once the Nixon player gets three or four of those, the editor will start paying attention. They'll stop him from getting it. So you might go to six or seven rounds. If you, for some reason, go to nine or ten rounds, then Nixon just wins regardless. But you have to be careful like managing that. The reason I waited to review this is that the first five games I played of it, the editor won. Uh, so it seemed like it was tilted in one direction. Historically accurate, but... Still not necessarily fun for, for a two-player board game. But having played it a bit since then, that's not necessarily the case. It just takes a little bit more nuance and a lot more aggression from the Nixon player to win the game. But they can win, and they have won several times now that I know kind of how to do it. This game is really, really good. I don't, like, I didn't know what to expect from it. It is, you know, they, they compare it to Twilight Struggle, which is a very good game, but it's two players. It is three plus hours long. It takes a ton of time to teach. If you know the game really well and you're teaching someone new, you're going to beat them even if you try not to. It's really hard to get into it. This game is very, very quick. I can teach it to you in five minutes. Like everything I just said is basically what you need to know to play. And the cards tell you everything else you need to do. It's very intuitive. Now, there are some nuances to it. Obviously, like I said, just two new players going at each other. The editor seems to have an edge a little bit. But once you know the cards, once you know the flow of the game, it's very evenly balanced. It's been pretty even since then with people that who've played it with me a few times. It's quick. It's a nice filler. There's a lot of really interesting back and forth 
mechanisms there. Highly, highly asymmetrical, but both sides are doing interesting things. And you never feel like you're doing well <laughs> until you finally win the game, which to me is a good sign of like an asymmetrical game. You're not like, all right, I'm winning. You can't catch me. That never happens in this. Even in like the first five where the editor won every time, it was very close where Nixon had four momentum tokens, like four of those five times. So I really, really like this. And I'm surprised because there's been a lot of games that came out and said, hey, it's the new Twilight Struggle, but short and quick and more accessible. And it hasn't been very good. So this game lives up to the hype somehow. It is kind of like permanently in my bag now, at least for the last four weeks or so as like a two player filler to play at game night if we end up with two. And I don't know, it's really, really good. I didn't think I'd like it as much as I did. And uh, it's really captured not just my, you know, interest, but several other people in my game group, you know, asked me to bring it, asked me to play. Even when we have the right numbers, like, let's just play this real quick and then we'll join this other game. Uh, Watergate is very solid. If you see it in your local game store and you need a new two player game, and you like the kind of political intrigue of, of games like this, I'd say definitely pick it up. It's a buy. So that's Watergate. It's from Capstone. It's very, very good. You mentioned Twilight Struggle, and obviously I, I get why this is in a comparison. How do you feel weight-wise those two compare? Um, This isn't that heavy. It really isn't. I mean, each deck of cards is finite. Like, you could look through your deck of cards before the game starts, having never played it, and get a general sense of what you're supposed to do. So it's pretty easy to get a sense of what direction to go, how to play it, how to prepare for it in like 10 or 15 minutes and just dive in. Twilight Struggle, I feel like the first play, maybe two of that game, you're just flying blind. You're like, <laughs> there's so much going on. There's so many pieces. You can't possibly know what all the cards are. If you play the Twilight Struggle as a new player against somebody who's played it at least five times, you're going to lose because that's how it's balanced. Like it's based on knowledge of the cards in the game and the, the game mechanics. Watergate, it feels like it's more accessible. And I really like it for that. Like it's definitely like BGG, they have it in the like two and a half weight range. I think that's fair. Even though there's a lot more depth there if you dig for it, but it's easy to kind of pick up. Cards. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about something, I guess, the complete opposite of Watergate, just especially as far as production is concerned. Watergate is kind of a little flat kind of nothing game, so to speak. And what I'm going to talk about is Barrage. Now, Anthony and I have talked about Barrage previously, got a chance to play it at PAX Unplugged last year. And this is from the designers Tomas Bastista and Simone Luciani. And the art, which is fantastic here, is Antonio Di Luca. And this was published by Cranio Creations. And as I mentioned, Anthony and I had an opportunity to play this. I liked it. Uh, Anthony, not so much. But to his credit, <laughs> he did back it, right? Yeah, this is this happens a lot on this podcast <laughs> where I feel like I'll back a game early and be like, yeah, this is interesting. And then maybe one of us will play it and be like, I don't know. And then you'll play it way before I do and review <laughs> it. And then I'll get back to it like six months later and be like, it's fine. Like, why did I pay for this? True. Well, four people in my game group backed it. I, I can't say who they are because they don't really exist. But nonetheless, four people backed it and none of them read the rules. So we had a, you know, a couple incidents trying to read through the rules. The rule book is a little bit of a bear to read through. And especially with 
the expansion modules coming with this game, it throws the game into a little more challenging situation because what goes together, what doesn't. And in fact, a lot of the production issues with this game really get in the way of gameplay. But let me actually talk about the game. Now, Barrage, if you don't remember way back when, so last year we talked about it, Barrage was a game about, I would guess, depending on how you want to place it, an alternate future, an alternate past. Nikola Tesla is out there, of course. And wealthy investors are funding his dam system in order to produce electricity in the French Alps. So as he's harnessing this new power by using water, which is awesome, you are going to be one of these brilliant engineers that are going to be putting together the system and ideally because it's a euro game score as many victory points as possible to win the game now if you have not played barrage before it looks to be a very heavy game i'm here to tell you it really isn't a complicated game it does have its challenges it does have its complexities and as i mentioned earlier some of the production issues do add to some of the challenge of playing the game But the game itself is rather basic and rather straightforward. Once you know the game, you could probably teach it in 15 minutes flat without an issue. Now, basically, here's the game. Water is flowing down. So you have the basins. You have these little lake areas on top. It tells you how much water is going to start down there. You have some generic dams that are run by the government that you'll be able to utilize at the very beginning and throughout the game. Water comes down to the basin. And then as as water flows, if there's a dam, it gets stopped. If not, it continues on and throws, you know, goes off the board. But nonetheless, if there's a dam, it gets stopped. If there is an opportunity with a power station and you have a conduit, basically what you're going to be able to do is run that water through the dam, run it through the conduit, check what the conduit power number is. And based on how many drops are passing through there, you will get that times the conduit power area and you will score that in energy now you also have your individual player board so as the game goes on you'll be adding dams and adding additional sections to it conduits and power stations as you do so it opens up some special abilities throughout the game that will give you an immediate benefit or an ongoing benefit throughout the game and you will add to your power at certain points on the power track you'll have an opportunity to score goals which are typically based upon buildings that you built on the map somewhere. And the challenge of the board tends to be that other people can get to certain spots first, block off water, be able to utilize the water before you can. And then throughout the game, they're trying to get special abilities as you are. And you're both trying to complete local contracts and federal contracts. And of course, Scoring that energy throughout the game is going to score you victory points. And obviously, as I mentioned at the beginning, the most victory points wins. Most of the mechanics here are based on this little sideboard where you're going to be generating energy. You're going to be moving water. You're going to be getting money. You're going to be able to move your turbine wheel, which is the main mechanic in the game. As far as when you build something, you put a little turbine piece on there. You put the resources there, you turn the turbine, and then throughout the game, you're going to be turning that turbine because otherwise you don't get your excavators and your, I guess, concrete movers uh, up and available again. So pretty much that's the main mechanic of the game. You don't lose the resources unless you expend the resources by using one of the particular actions, especially with the expansion module. But the game moves on. 
you build your pieces, you run your water, you score your energy, you get the contracts. It's a relatively simple game. But as I mentioned earlier, a lot of things tend to get in the way. Obviously, other players are going to get into the way and positioning matters a lot. And going first matters a lot because you'll be able to put things down to block other people's water. Running those opportunities and scoring victory points is challenging in part because the board is a little bit challenging. Now, with this new Kickstarter, you had a double-sided board. And what I mean by the double... No. With this Kickstarter, you had two boards. One was the basic flat board, and the second board had this kind of double layer to it. And the double layer had a magnetic component to the bottom, which actually made it, I I guess, if you wanted to call it this way, a four-level thickness board. I personally don't understand why they went that way with the board, just because it didn't seem to really benefit the gameplay, so to speak. In fact, it made things a little more challenging when I was playing the game because I kept looking at the board and trying to figure out by these little arrows and these little numbers exactly where things are. And then one of our friends said, so Chris, tell me, how does it feel to play with a board four times thicker than average? And I got to be honest with you, it It just seemed like a regular board. So I'm not sure where the extra production came from. I don't know why why the extra cost. The machinery pieces are different sizes and can be incredibly tiny and problematic. The water drops are nice pieces, but once again, they're very tiny and problematic. The expansion that you can pick up with this game offers some additional opportunities. So you'll get a new player boards and these player boards have special abilities that go along with it. And there's an unlocking special ability when you build three of the conduits in the game. So there's an opportunity that each and every time playing with a special ability does open the game up a little bit more. And in general, that's pretty nice. You like to have new options. The barrage expansion, the Legwater project as I mentioned, will give you an additional player board in orange. But here's the thing. You can't play with five players, even though now you have five boards. You can just swap out the orange with something else. I'm a big fan of orange, so it's always good to have. There's additional pieces that come along with this expansion. It's pretty much a modular expansion, so to speak. So you'll be able to have an opportunity to to pick up special abilities and to pick up special buildings that throughout the game are going to give you more and more bonuses if you keep going back to them. So in general, Barrage is a very nice, very wheel-meaning game with a decent production, great artwork in the game, but otherwise it's just a pretty much a general average okay Euro with a good but problematic production If you backed it with Kickstarter, you got everything and you probably had some board issues or some turbine issues or some boards kind of popping up. It's been all over the Internet. It's a thing, man. It's just an overproduction as far as the game's concerned that led to some basic issues. I'm going to give it a play. And honestly, that feels like as high as I can go for the game. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Like I've been obviously reading these things for months as a backer, and I'm I like it was very expensive, so I'm disappointed. And I played the game after the Kickstarter was over, so I obviously couldn't change my investment on that. But even like my play of the game, I was just like, all right, this is fine. I don't know. <laughs> like I don't know. I my copy is still sitting here. 
I'm waiting on the third package because you didn't mention this. If you backed it, they shipped it in several different packages. Some of them damaged, some of them not. I have not opened the other two because I'm waiting on the third one, but I'm sure some Mm -hmm. of them are broken. And I have yet to get mine out to the table and I'm kind of wary to do so. Eh, It just is what it is. I don't know. It's most Kickstarters are fine and maybe the game's not great, but it's not the, you know, the campaign's fault. This one. I'm just wary to even open it up. Yeah, and that's what some of the backers in my game group were thinking. Was it worth opening up and getting it to the table? It does take up a lot of table space. The board's huge. The player boards are huge. The the wheels are huge. And surprisingly enough, the components are super, super tiny. So I don't know if I would recommend opening your Kickstarter instead of selling your Kickstarter, especially with some of the production issues. And as you mentioned, some of the you know, mailing issues on top of everything else. I do enjoy the fact that the different player powers add something different to the game and you're able to pick extra turbine pieces that add something different to the game. I do feel like it could have been edited down a little bit just because there's just a little too much going on the board. Certain things aren't clear. I've never been a proponent for abstracting up a game, you know, but you know, function comes before anything else. And it kind a lot of little things get in the way of this being a great game. All right, Anthony. So that's everything that's been hitting our table. Let's get on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about the best of our best. Our top two games from three designers that we love. And thankfully, surprisingly enough, no overlaps. So Anthony, what made you come up with this topic? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I I feel like enough people had asked me, either in game groups or online, what are your favorite games by the the designers you like the most? Because, you know, people come to my house and they see my Feld line. (laughs) They're like, which of these are your favorites? But even like I'd mentioned offhandedly, oh, Lestard is great. You should back on Mars. Like, well, which are the best so I can see what he's like? And I figured, hey, why not share the best games from our favorite designers, which I think is important reference point because this is not necessarily our favorite Mm -hmm. games of all time it's the designers from which we like the most game like these are the game designers who produce games we like in general you know if they release a game i'm going to look at it whether i buy it or not i'm definitely going to give it a look and then what are the best games from that individual person i will mention too that we aim to Mm -hmm. not overlap at all so you know if somebody covered one designer, the other person's not necessarily going to cover that designer, even if it's in their top five designers, just to avoid just you know, doubling up on the same games. But because obviously we have you know similar. Yeah, tastes. this is a difficult one. I thought it was going to be pretty simple and right off the top. But a lot of designers that are out there have designed like one epic game and then a couple of like, oh, these are decent games or maybe this is close to being great. And then obviously some other designers developed really good games but maybe don't get to the table or maybe something way in the past and then like oh that's out of print i i heard great things about it i played this new one it it probably has so there's a lot for me looking at these designers i had three here but i probably had another seven that i was looking at and i just had to make a cut somewhere so i i ended up with these three yeah 100 percent. like i felt like I started by looking at my own personal top 100 list 
And my number one game of all time hasn't changed in a few years. It's War of the Ring. And yet every other game I've played by the design duo who did War of the Ring, I haven't really liked sure. very much. Like, I don't know what it, I don't know what it is. Like, they just spent a ton of time on this or it's the perfect combination. But their other games, eh. So they're not on my list. And another right? thing for me, there were a lot of game designers that were co-designers on games. So I really tried to get designers that either designed the game by themselves or were the lead designers because so many games are like two great designers and i was like well that's not really fair who do i give this to so that was just another caveat to it yeah 100 percent. yeah and i cheated a little bit on that one but we'll <laughs> get to it um i will mention there's a few like newish designers who have like maybe a small number of games they've designed or they're relatively new to the hobby that I really almost wanted to give recognition to, but they just don't have enough games to say this is one of my favorite designers, like Cole Worley with Root and then PAX Premier Second Edition. Like those two games, when I update my top 100, are going to be in the top 20. But those are the only two games of his that I've played and liked. So like, I'm not going to put the, sure. like, I need more mm -hmm. to, to build on that. Uh, you know, Alex Pfister, like, ugh, maybe he'd almost be on there, except his last game was like, not great. And none of his games are like top, top 10 top 20 for me they're all really good so there's a few of those people but the, the three i picked are like these are really really solid i'll play anything they produce and i have several of their games in my top 100 all right well why don't you start us off with one all right uh first one up for me is vital lacerda uh, of course this is this is actually my number one so i'm not working in any direction here it's just the one i kind of want to throw at the top here i own I think all of his games at this point. Um, I'm really looking forward to the updated version of Kanban because it's probably the ugliest game I have of his. Uh, but all of his games are great. They're all fantastic. They're all a lot of fun. Some are not at quite the same level as other ones, but I enjoy all of them to the point that I'm happy to own them at their big, expensive deluxe editions. Uh, the two that I like the best, though, are The Gallerist because it's just it's seamless. It is smooth. It is just it flows really cleanly it's quick to teach and it's really pretty to look at and then lisboa is not nearly as seamless and quick to teach but is just this big epic sprawl of mechanics that all somehow managed to weave their way together and not just mechanically but like thematically they make sense like if you describe what's happening people get it uh so i really really enjoy both of those games and if people ask me you know what listerator game should i start with i'm like well this one's a little bit not necessarily lighter, but a little more accessible. And this one is like, this is full of Serda. Go to Lisboa. <laughs> so those are the two. And those are the top two for my my favorite designer list. Yeah, this was on my list as well. Obviously, Lisboa is one of my favorite games of all time. The Gallerist is definitely up there. Just doesn't get enough table time for me to pull the trigger on this. And I'm really waiting for On Mars. I think if On Mars is as good as I think it will be, then he would obviously be here with no doubt. Just... So many great games, just just really have to find the group for that. All right, so let's talk about something pretty obvious. Anthony already mentioned this. Stefan Feld, surprise! Yeah, uh, Stefan Feld has a lot of great games, and it was really hard to narrow down which of those games. What I really love about Stefan Feld is that while he uses some similar type of mechanics, just barely, the games are very different than each other. And I find that surprising because there are other designers that take a game and there's multiple 
reiterations of it over and over and over again, which is fine, but Fell does something different. So here are two of my favorite games that he does. First off is Bruges. Bruges is fantastic for so many reasons. It's beautiful to look at. It's fun to play. The multi-use card mechanic. The cards are the houses. The cards are the people, the travelers that are moving in. They have their banners on there where you can get all these different things that you need throughout the game. It's fantastic. It's like the ultimate tableau builder. I'm so in love with this game, especially with the expansion that really opens the games up and allows the dice to do a lot more. Brilliant. Next, this was a hard one because I wasn't sure whether I was going to go low or high on this, and I decided to go high and big, and that's Amerigo. Amerigo is fantastic because the cube tower. Now, I recently got a chance to play Shogun with the same cube tower, but I really like Amerigo because the actions go in there and you see how much of an action you can really do. And if it's not everything of, of an action, you might have an opportunity to do that action later at a lesser power. So it's really fun and fantastic as far as what can be available in that time and space. Not to mention you build up this whole islands out there on the board and you are sailing around, you're placing out puzzle pieces. For me personally, this is my own my own and favorite puzzle game out here. And you're building up civilizations, so to speak. And you are collecting resources, you're gaining special abilities. And once again, fantastic cube tower mechanic. A lot, a lot of fun. Feld has so many great things. These are not obviously the ones you think about when you think about Feld, but for me, these are two of his best games. Yeah, it's funny. Like, uh, Stefan Feld was, like I said, I own almost every single one of his games. I think I'm missing two, maybe three. And I didn't put it on the list because I knew you were going to cover it, and these two games rank a little bit higher on your lists than the ones on mine. Sure. But uh, Castles of Burgundy for me, all-time favorite, top 10 game. Uh, Marigo is up there. It's in my top 20, top 30. Macau is brilliant. I wish they'd reprint that so more people could play it. Definitely. Oh, there's so many good games up in this shelf I'm currently looking at. So I'm all on board with Feld. Yeah, I'm going to throw in uh, Castles of Burgundy, the uh, card game, which is... Oh, absolutely. Which is yeah. like, it costs nothing and it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's also my top 50. Like, it's... Me too. I, I could have put... I could have put Castle of Burgundy and then Castle of Burgundy in the card game, and I'd be happy with that. All right. What do you got next? All right. So for me, uh, just because you just mentioned how you didn't do co-designers, I'm going to do a co-designer. Uh, <laughs> uh, Daniel Tashini. So Daniel Tashini, an Italian designer who frequently works with Simone Luciani, who designed or worked on Barrage, which you talked about today. Um, he has worked on the bunch, a whole bunch of games with Simone uh, Zolkin, Voyages of Marco Polo, Council of Four. But he's really come into his own of late. And I, I wanted to highlight two games in particular, one which he was a co-designer on, but you can kind of see his influence on it. And then one in which he was the sole designer, um, which was my favorite game of 2018, and even more so now with the expansion. So the first... The Voyages of Marco Polo is a top 10 favorite game for me. I love this game. I will always love this game. It's one of my favorite uh, implementations of worker placement with the, the dice mechanisms and the way you manipulate the map. And then the more recent game, Teotihuacan, City of Gods, is a sole Daniel Tushini game, which 
just takes the idea of dice as workers and converts it a little bit where you're not rolling them, but you're still utilizing them. And instead of like a straight worker placement, it's a rondelle where you have individual workers moving around this board um, in various ways you can manipulate and, and play through. The expansion just elevates that game to a whole nother level for me. I'm really excited for his new game, which is cheating a little bit, but it looks really good and kind of takes that same idea with the dice and takes it to yet another level where you're drafting those dice workers. So uh, I'm really excited for Trust Magistus, which comes out later this year. I feel like Tashini is doing things with dice in board games, similar to what like Stefan Feld was doing 10 years ago, but like to a different level that I'm just excited to see what he does next. So any game he's on, any game his name is attached to, I'm going to play. I'm excited to play. And the last handful that he's released, I've really, really enjoyed. So um, he's up there for me. Uh, the two that I would recommend, of course, Voyages of Marco Polo. Don't need the expansion. This game is fantastic on its own. The expansion adds to that if you played a bunch, but by itself, go for it. And then Teotihuacan, City of Gods. Um, I really like it without the expansion, but I know several people who were like in the middle on it, and the expansion just takes it up to the next level. So I would recommend playing that with the player powers in the expansion, um, the late pre-classic period expansion that I actually reviewed last yeah, week. Yeah, for me, this is one of these things where where exactly did one designer start and the other one end? Luciani and Toscani, I'm just like, yeah, you know, is this more of a Lorenzo feel here? Is this more of a, you know, Grand Austria Hotel? Like, what? I, I, I mean, I love Voyages of Marco Polo. Tentatawaka, not so much, but I'm definitely looking forward to coming back to it as far as when the expansion hits. So for me is a designer that does not get enough love, but he does some fantastic games. One of my favorite designers, Vladimir Succi. Now, Vladimir Succi has produced one of the best games that not everyone has played because Terraforming Mars is kind of eclipsing everything at the moment. And that's Underwater Cities. Now, Underwater Cities is very similar to Terraforming Mars, but it's a lot more slimmed down. It's edited. The artwork is all consistent and really nice. They just re-released the game with better player board, so they're not the paper thin like they were before. Still some problems with the chit, so to speak. But basically, in the game, it's pretty simple and a lot of fun. You choose an action. If the card matches that you're playing with that color action, you get to use the card as well. You're building your underwater city. You're building domes. You're building tunnels. You're building different plants. And then you are connecting to different metropolises throughout the game. There are goals and contract cards. No, I'm not describing Terraforming Mars, but it's damn close to it. And for me, it's absolutely even better than Terraforming Mars. Now, beyond that is one of his, I guess, so to speak, classic games that I love and adore. And never thought I would. That's Shipyard. Now, Shipyard is typically known for all the rondelles you could ever want. They're just on... They're just rondelles for days and days and days. And I'm a fan of a rondelle. So as you move along these rondelles, you gain special abilities and you gain resources. And what's really fantastic about the game, and so much fantasticness to it, I can't say it all, but you're basically building up ships in the shipyard. So you're actually constructing the ships in parts throughout the game, building smaller, bigger ships. You're adding crew, you're adding different pieces to the ship, and you're actually sailing the ship not the actual piece of ship that you you know built, but a little representation down the waterways in order to gain extra points and extra resources 
Shipyard is fantastic. I wish it was reprinted because I think everyone would play it. Underwater Cities is amazing. It's getting an expansion really soon. Love Vladimir Suchi. Love Last Will. Love the Prodigals Club and so much more that he's already made. Yeah, Vladimir Suchi is awesome. Um, I, I like. I don't. I played Shipyard not too long ago. I didn't love it quite as much as you do, but I really appreciated what he mm-hmm. was doing there. It's just a little too fiddly for me. But Underwater Cities was one of my favorite games of last year. And while it hasn't quite supplanted Terraforming Mars for me, just because I play Terraforming Mars and Underwater Cities so much solo, it is, in my opinion, a better game with multiple players, like a higher player can especially. Uh, it plays faster, it's smoother, it's cleaner. I'm really looking forward to the expansion. So, And he just he seems to think outside the box a lot. Like Last Will, Prodigal's Club, those are not... Those are just clever ideas that you don't see a lot in games. And I want to see more of that. And he does that a lot. Yeah. The idea that you're actually building your machine, like you do in every other game, but breaking it down and just messing yourself up throughout the whole way is fantastic. And you don't see it anywhere else. All right, Anthony, what about your last one? All right. My last one is a game designer that I only recently kind of came around to. He's been around for two decades and that's Martin Wallace. So this is a name you've probably heard a lot because he's designed something like 30 games at this point. But I personally had not played a ton of his games until like the last two or three years. And yet now I have several of his games in my top 50. And it it's not just one individual game that kind of kicked that off. So uh, I'm going to talk about Brass Birmingham to start and Lancashire, obviously indirectly, because that's the original game that it's built on. I like Birmingham a little bit better. There are co-designers on that. Lancashire is a fantastic game. However, um, <laughs> if you look at the top 100 on BGG right now, Birmingham's number 12, Lancashire's number 21. Not a huge fan of how they like have them both on there, but like you can see that people are fans of both of these. Um, just the just the clever way that the card mechanics kind of flow, and you have all these different ways that you can generate resources and, and revenue. Uh, based on how you build out your track. Like there's no single course to take here. It's not like he has a lot of games that are built around like developing networks like Steam and Railways of the World. And there's usually like a single path that you can take to victory. Not like one way to win, but like you need to do this thing or you're not going to win. In Brass, there are several different things you can do to kind of build up your engine or like leech off of someone else's engine. And there's no one right way to do it. And I really, really like that about this game. Uh, Birmingham, especially kind of like amps it up a little bit. And then the other game that I really don't think people give enough credit to uh, is London. Now, London came out originally in 2010, the first edition. And this game flew, you know, it, it was well played. People liked it, but it was decently under the radar. Went out of print pretty quickly. A second edition came out in 2017 from Osprey and flew even more under the radar because <laughs> it's Osprey games and they don't do a ton of promotion, but it's prettier. It's cleaner. It's smoother. It has better mechanics. It removes the board, which is a little bit superfluous. It looks fantastic. It takes the whole, like most Martin Wallace games have this whole idea of like loans and ways you have to pay things back at the end of the game. And that's still there, but it's really like pared down to the basics of, it really only punishes you if you ignore the core game mechanisms. I love this game. This is like a top 25 game for me. I wish more people had it. I bring it to me with me to game night frequently because I just 
if anybody's interested, I want to teach it to them. Uh, London is one of my favorite games. And in general, Martin Wallace has done just a lot of really, really interesting stuff. You know, he's got a study of in study in Emerald via Nebula, kind of streamlining the whole uh, root building thing. Wildlands, taking the card mechanics and building it into like a miniatures game. I don't love all of these games necessarily, but I really like his ability to take familiar mechanisms and put them into new packages. And he's consistently doing that and has been doing so for a really long time. So uh, Martin Wallace, definitely check out his games. And if you're looking for two in particular, London and Brass are a good place to start. Yeah, I really like uh, Wallace's game, especially uh, Brass Birmingham. I've always wanted to get London to the table and everyone seemed to have played it and it's now not in the rotation. So I got to find some way to play London because it seems like something I really would like and uh, it might bring uh, Wallace back to uh, my table. So for me, I was looking for something a little different and wasn't sure exactly where it was going to lead me. Of course, I looked a lot of different places. I was like, you know what? Big fan of the Euro games, but every once in a while, I like to have a good mare trash throwdown. So of course, I was like, how about Lang? Eric Lang, man, you never know where he is. Maybe it's, you know, Blood Rage and, you know, Rising Sun and Arcadia Quest. I'm like, ah, it's really good. And then I came across the designer for Rune Wars and Star Wars Rebellion. And I was like, the most epic plastic miniatures dudes on the map, you know, build up at a Euro game, Ameritrash game. And the same thing with Star Wars Rebellion, the best Star Wars game out there, two player hidden mechanics, everything that really represents the best in Star Wars. Corey Kaniska. And I, I don't have to throw this in here, but uh, Twilight Imperium 4, which was really hard for me to figure out exactly what parts he did and didn't do there. And even if he did all of it, Rune Wars is true to my heart. Love the game. Was recently even talking about it. You probably haven't played it because it's out of print, but it's amazing. And Star Wars Rebellion, especially with the expansion, you get everything from the original trilogy and a little bit more from the other movies. And it really just depicts the movie and the battling in the best way possible. And you probably don't recognize it, but he's done so many great games out there. And he's definitely someone you should check out. Oh, dude, 100%. Like, this is... Because he worked for Fantasy Flight... And I guess he doesn't work for them anymore. He kind of works in his own independent studio with an asthma day, but he has worked on so many games and it's hard to know which ones he solely developed versus yeah. which ones he kind of worked on. To my understanding, he was basically the script doctor for TI four. Like he came in, he took TI three and he just fixed it up and cleaned it up. And he worked with the team to make it more streamlined and economical and interesting. And from what I've seen of TI three rules, he did a good job. So <laughs> a lot of the things that would be cumbersome and obnoxious in TI4, he has done a lot of good work on. And that's obviously just one part of like the billion things he's done, all these different games. Yeah, it's crazy to think like, and, and like the studio system does that. It kind of diminishes a little bit the name of the designer, but his name somehow still rises above all that. Yeah, and I, even to mention Battlestar Galactica, which for me is like mm. the definitive Battlestar Galactica game, hidden trader mechanic the best way possible, and just a tremendous amount of fun. I mean, he really owns IP gaming, as you mentioned. 
hard to tell exactly where he begins and ends, but I did pick the games that were just listed as him alone. And you can tell what his ridiculous, outstanding list of fantastic games that, you know, he definitely deserves a place in anyone's collection. Yeah, dude, I forgot about Battlestar. Like, Battlestar. <laughs> Man, I wish that was back in print. <laughs> All right, everyone. So that's everything for this time. Until next week, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you all a seat at the table. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. 